Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's just before Lag Bomber here. It's Wednesday. And this week looks like we have an umbarasmal to reach. A lot of big yard sites. And do what I talk about today or it's tomorrow is the Ramah, the famous author of the Shulchanar, back in the 1500s. It's a very, very interesting figure. And Ramah, so you can talk for 12 hours and still have plenty of room. I'm serious about this. I have a personal stake in Ramah because I am related to his sister, it turns out. He had a sister named Miriam, Miriam Bela, and she must have been a very of individual. And the only reason I say that is because there's a famous book from the Chida called the Shem HaGadolim, and very famous back in the 18th century. And he lists over there, it's a very famous encyclopedia of famous authors and famous farm. I mean, the Rishon Mechronim, you know, all the big, it's a classic, safer for looking up uh, who's who. And it's all men. I mean, who wrote a safer? Who are the big rabbis? There's a male. And there's one exception. There's one woman in the whole book. And that's uh, Miriam Bela, the sister of Ramah. I have no idea why. Nobody else has any idea why. All these guys who are writing commentaries on the Chidor are trying to figure out like, who is she and whatever. And uh, obviously she was a big deal once upon a time. Uh, the Ramah himself, Moshe Isterlis, and therefore his sister, multi-millionaire family. Here you have a situation which is, I regard as very, very interesting. Drama usually classically is regarded as a boring biography. Uh, not too many dramatic events happen in his life, although there are some. But uh, it really is not. Uh, it's a very, very unusual type. Uh, here's somebody that was born with a silver spoon in his mouth to great wealth and luxury, was a child genius, and used all of his resources to, to make himself the biggest gutter. You know, so in other words, he made full positive use of the resources. Some people, you give them a million dollars to blow it. It's a wasted on them. That's probably most people. And some people, if they had a million dollars, they would use it in the right way. Latoru Uda, you know, and uh, he came, he was, the Ramo lived in the early 1500s in Poland, the golden age of Poland. He is the golden age of Poland. And uh, that's when the Jews had it good. And uh, he's from Krakow, which was the capital city of Poland at that time, one of the oldest cities, the oldest universities. In his time, Krakow was really a cosmopolitan center of international culture and science, by the standards of the 16th century, of course. And uh, his father was loaded, and a big Talmud Chacham, Yisrael Isser, classic, old-school, Ashkenazi, millionaire, Poland style, meaning... Listen to, listen to what I'm about to tell you. He was so rich that he said, I guess, I'm not going to send my son to college. Why would I do that? I'll hire him the best tutors to make him the best lamdan, and he'll grow up to be a big gadol. And that's exactly what happened. So from the time he was young, he came from a rich family. The father could afford to hire the best rebbies, you know, one-on-one, and the best people to teach him lamdas and halacha and all that kind of business uh, because money's no object. 
and uh, therefore he got an elite education, and he made full advantage of it because he was happened to be the type of kid that had this genius brain. Let's put it this way. He got smicha when he was 13. Of course, I'm sure having the family money didn't hurt, but he used a bar hockey. And uh, he was already a row of uh, Abazin in Krakow, which is the capital city. I think by the time he was 20 years old. So even though there's obviously some protection involved over there, but you get still, once again, got to be a bar hockey. And you and I know from our vantage point today, it wasn't just a nepotism. Look, he turned out to be one of the greatest gadolim, arguably the greatest. So it's just a very interesting profile that I just described. Somebody who did all the right things and made all the right moves and was a nice guy. Now, he didn't come across as arrogant if you ever read his stuff. He doesn't come across as taking advantage of his situation, uh, you know, at someone else's expense. The opposite is always very thoughtful, very respectful of others. It's very interesting. The per- not many people are eyeing in the, ra- the Ramah, especially his many, many different writings. Uh, but if you do, you see, like I said before, he has very nice amidos, uh, really an aristocratic temperament in the best sense of the word, not the haughty and arrogant sense of the word. That's why it's just interesting to me, being related to his sister, you know, what was that all about? Mm-hmm. Because uh, she, I did a little bit of research on her, because after all, it's an ancestor, and uh, it's hard to find stuff, but she was a gabait tzedakah, isn't that funny? Gabait tzedakah. Who the heck knows what even that means back in the 1600s? Uh, 1500s. Uh, this is a little digression here. Does the Gabi Tzedakah mean that she was in charge of one of the one of the individuals in charge of the total Tzedakah fund of the city or Poland? That's a powerful position indeed, especially for a woman. So that means that you know, let's put it th- let's put it this way: it wasn't that she was a woman; it's that she's a millionaire. You know, that's where she had her, her pull. Alternatively, Gabi Tzedakah could mean I don't know. Gabay Sedaka means she was in charge of giving the money out to the women. Because that's more of a sinistic way, correct? You know, you have men who need Sedaka and things like that, of course, and you have females. And it's not necessarily appropriate for a man to be involved with giving stuff out to females and knowing their uh, private situations, which Sedaka, look, I'm in the rabbi business, you know, but you have to know all these private information involving Sedaka situations. Not everybody you think needs Sedaka does, and vice versa. And so maybe in those days they had it that if you're a woman, you go to her. You know what I'm saying? So she's the godly suck over there. All we know is she was a big, big deal. Miriam Bela. Uh, and then she, and she had a dramatic death. She, uh, she died on her anniversary of her wedding. The day her daughter, let's put it this way, she died just before her daughter walked down the chuppah. I mean, it's like a movie, <laughs> right? And there's a Friday. We'll see in a minute. I'll get back to this later. The weddings used to be on Fridays, preferably. And, uh, oh my goodness, you can just imagine what a scene that was. But to get back to Ramah, or Moshe, Moshe brings to all this, here's somebody, as I said before, who had all these golden opportunities, who obviously was a genius, uh, whose father, because he was a very wealthy merchant, that's how he made money in those days, traveled in the highest circles. Krakow was the capital city of Poland, Jews were in all kind of interesting situations in the court of the king of Poland. Uh, they weren't in the government, but the Jews were the doctors, the physicians, especially Sephardim. And so a lot of Sephardim ran away from uh, Spain and made their way to Poland. Why not? That, like people ran away from Hitler and came to America. And uh, there was, there, we had some famous uh, Spanish Sephardim doctors who were Tommy Chum and some were Kabbalim and all this kind of stuff. And here you have the young son of the rich guy 
having to do with them. It's not a shtetl. I'm trying to tell you. People who don't know think Krakow, Poland, is all a shtetl. It's not a shtetl. There are rabbinim in shtetls. He's like a rabbi, you might say, quote-unquote, in New York City, you know, a, a cosmopolitan place. Um, Drama learned for a couple years in Lublin by Rosham Shachna, who is also mm-hmm. one of these extremely powerful and rich uh, kings. I'm sorry, uh, rabbis, uh, the king of Poland made Rosham Shachna. He was like a big Rosh Hashiva, very big Rosh Hashiva, and he was Mr. Lumdus of the old style of Lumdus, Mr. Pilpel. He was the big Talmud of Rabbi Yaakov Pollock. And Rosham Shachna was empowered by the king of Poland that he could issue death penalty on any Jew that, 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 that didn't listen to the Bezin. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how influential the Jews were once upon a time. It was a wild and crazy period. But aside from learning by Rosham Shachna for a couple of years, and some say he married his daughter, it's not clear. Uh, he spent the rest of his life in, in Krakow. It reminds you a little bit about Rashi, who lived all in one place, except for a few years when he learned elsewhere. Uh, and... The Ramah did not live a long life. There's always many legends. The Jewish, you know, tradition, especially the Gedolim, are full of half-truths and lies and baloney legends. You know, they say he left 33 years and he died a lot of bummer and this and You know, no, you know, they, to be accurate about it, as far as we know, the Ramah was born around 1525, something like that, and he died in 1572. So what does that mean? Uh, he was 47, 48, when that's a young, but it's not like 33. Uh, and nobody knows exactly how and why he died, although there are some interesting uh, speculations which I'll tell you about shortly, I plan to. Now, in the case of Ramah, as I said before, here's somebody who became the head of a, a very prestigious court. I think he's the one who set up the basin over there. And because he was a zillionaire from Yerusha, he always had a big yeshiva that he never had to have a mesholach. You had this in Poland in those days. He had his own private yeshiva, uh, you know, you can't fire him, so to speak. He's the boss. And uh, great students uh, flocked to him. And so he had a grand old time. And the Jews in Krakow lived, as they say, kind of a gilded ghetto. And uh, they lived in an area called Kashmir's, which is often quoted in the Swarm. And this must have been such a proud Jewish community and independent that they regarded the Jewish quarter, the Jewish... I don't want to use the word ghetto, but, you know, because it wasn't a place they had to live, but it's a place they wanted to live. And uh, the, the Gitten, you know, the, the, the Gitten were signed in Kashmir's, which is kind of interesting, because usually when Gitten, you're supposed to write in the city, Krakow, but, you know, they did over there, all of which is taken by the historians, Balaban and the others, to show you that the Jewish community there was well-off, uh, self-assured, uh, you know, uh, in a good situation. And uh, those were the good years, the, the particularly good years of the kingdom of Poland. That's very interesting. He lived at the right time, shall we say, and the right place. But it's also true that um, there were a lot of uh, cosmopolitan knowledge flowing through Krakow. And so, the Ramo is just very interesting in, the follow- in, in many ways. Here's one of them. On the one hand, he's Mr. Learning. Uh, so obviously, he was a great gong, obviously. Second of all, he had a natural interest in halacha. Of course, if you're the head of the Beisden, while you're also giving the yeshiva, that's the old school type of Rosh Yeshiva, then of course you have your head every day with halacha questions, correct? In other words, the shiurim you give aren't simply, you know, like brisk or lumdus or something like that. They're always going to be that you have in mind at the back of your head or, or even farther to the front 
I have this big Shiloh that the basin is dealing with, and that big Shiloh basin is dealing with. So therefore, he's going to be very halachalamaisa oriented. We know he gave a lot of shirim in Tur and in the Mordechai, which used to be the uh, classic Ashkenazi halacha book. And of course, in Shas and Poskim and that sort of thing, Morashi Tosfos and Rishonim. Uh, but very heavy emphasis on halacha, and that's why uh, the Ramal become associated not with writing books on Lamdis, but rather writing with books on halachalamaisa. In fact, obviously, you know, he wrote the Shulchan right? The Ashkenazi part. So, this is a guy that, <laughs> it's not a question of, you know, did he follow the Shulchan Aruch? He wrote the Shulchan Aruch. <laughs> now, uh, in this context, you have somebody who spent all of his life, not so long he lived, he didn't live to be 50 years old, teaching a lot of halacha classes, a lot of gemar. Because when I say halacha, I'm talking about in the uh, deep way, which is every halacha, you go to the sugya, and you work your way up from the gemara, to the achroni achronim of his time. He was a classic Ashkenazi Jew, but he's living in Poland. The Ashken, for those of you who don't know, which is probably most of you, the Ashkenazi Jews originally started in France, ended up in Germany, and in Germany, they moved all over Germany, and eventually the Minhagen, the Minig Ashkenaz, kind of split into two. It's what he called the Western Ashkenaz custom and the Eastern Ashkenaz custom. So the Western Ashkenaz system is what we would call today the Yekis, the Minig of the Rhineland, uh, Frankfurt, uh, the cities on the Rhine, Spear, Worms, uh, Mainz. Uh, very old and very honorable Mesorah, and uh, that's one way. But many Jews also moved farther to the east of that, in what we would call the eastern half of Germany. And they developed what they call Minig Ostreich. Not Austria, but the Minig of the eastern part of the, of the German Empire, in which they modified their customs somewhat from the Yekis which is why those of us who are not Yekis today do things a little bit different than the German Jews. Uh, those Jews from the eastern part of the Reich are the ones who moved later into Poland. And that's the ancestors of the Ramon, people like him. That's the ancestors of them. And the result is that uh, when you get to Ramon, you get the, those Minhagim. Uh, the Minig, uh, Minhagim of the Jews of the eastern um, part of the Reich and the kingdom of Poland, which is where he lived. And that eventually became the majority of the Ashkenaz. But there were some Yekis at that time who complained that his uh, Minhagim that he records in the Shulchan Aruch and all that are not identical with theirs and that he was prejudiced in favor of the eastern part of the uh, you know uh, Ashkenaz system. There's truth to that. Uh, a very famous and sharp attack was written against him by the brother of Maral, for example, Chaim ben Betzal. It's a, you know, th- th- these are nitty-gritty questions for the historians of Halacha. Right now is not the time to go into that, uh, because the Ramah is much bigger than just that. Um, another part, though, in addition to being Mr. Halacha, uh, because he was planning, actually, to write what you and I call the Shulchanach. I mean, one big book to cover all the dinim. He's going to outdo the Rambam, outdo the tour. But what happened was that, while he was working on this, Rabbi Yosef Kara, far away in Israel, published the Shulchan Aruch. And so he found himself a little nonplussed, like, uh-oh. And uh, what do I do now? I had an experience like that 30 years ago. Not that I'm, <laughs> you know, on that level, but you're planning to write something, somebody beats you to it. And so what he did was he rearranged his material to say, okay, I'm not, I'm going to add the Ashkenazic stuff, what you and I call the Ramote de Mapa, which means he took the existing book of Yosef Karan and just added to it. Originally, if it was on his own, he would have uh, written, you know, uh, the whole Shulchan Aruch from top to bottom. In fact... There's a story in the Magad Misharim, I think, uh, 
that the angel tells, I mean, I don't know if it's a true story, the angel tells Yosef Kahn in Israel, you better hurry up and finish this book, because there's a guy in Krakow, far away in Poland, and he's working to beat you, and, uh, you know, if you don't hurry up, you, you, you know, you'll lose the race. So, uh, just, these are the kind of rumors that popped up at that time. So, for those of you who don't know, Rabbi Yosef Karo in Israel wrote to Beis Yosef, which was his step A in writing the grand code of Jewish law called the Shulchan Aruch. And Beis Yosef's were scholars. So, if you want to look up Gemara, I mean, you want to look up a halacha, you find it such a place, and he'll give you the basic, the very basic uh, way of, of, of uh, getting the sources from, from the Gemara and the Rishonim uh, forward. So, you look in the Beis Yosef, and later on he sort of summarized it in a separate book called the Shulchan Aruch. So the Ramah was planning to do the same thing like the Beis Yosef, but then the Beis Yosef beat him to it. So instead he wrote the Dark Moshe, which is supplementing the, the Beis Yosef wrote with the Ashkenazi customs. And later on he did the same thing with the Shulchan Aruch. I hope I haven't confused you. Many of you probably know this. For those of you who don't, I'll just summarize by saying the Beis Yosef wrote it first and he put it the Sephardi way. And then the Ramah added to it the Ashkenazi way to simplify Okay, now uh, this is one side of the Ramah, and like I said, I could talk for hours, so I have to limit myself. What's equal? I, would, I just want to bring up a few points today. That's all. Another side is uh, the fact that he wasn't only interested in Gemara, 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 Halacha, 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 even though it's obviously what preoccupied his main time. As I said before, he lived in a in a, in a rather cosmopolitan environment, and therefore. These Spanish Jews who moved to the court of the King of Poland and, and people like that brought in the Spanish traditions, especially the philosophical ones. Uh, basically, I'm talking about the introduction into Ashkenaz, maybe for the first time, maybe not. That's the argument among big scholars of uh, interest in philosophy. Uh, Ashkenazi Jews traditionally aren't into philosophy like the Rambam and those other people because the Ashkenazi Jews were not exposed to Arabic, uh, you know, philosophical trends. Uh, and therefore, the Ashkenazi communities, all the way back to Rashi's time, are usually identified with Gemar, 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 and nothing else. That's almost like the spitz from Ashkenaz, or what you and I called yeshivish today, super yeshivish. Gemar, 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 and a little bit of aloha. That's it, that's it. Um, but the Ramah lived at a time where Sephardim, running away from Spain, ended up in Poland. And they brought with them, I'm talking about from people, they brought with them not only the tradition of Sephardi learning, which is Chashev, but also things besides Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. So I'll use the word Haskalah. Of course, I don't mean in the modern sense. Uh, and particularly the, uh, the philosophical writings of the Ramah, especially in the Mornavuchim. The Mornavuchim was printed for the first time when the Ramah was a young man. I think it was in 1551, I believe. If Ramah, so that means the Ramah was like 25, 26, 27 years old, something along those lines. And uh, it made a big splash because the average guy in Yeshiva and Ashkenazi Yeshiva knows the Rambam from the Rambam, you know, the Mishnah Torah. And here they come with, the, what is this philosophy business? And the Murnavuchim, the guy for the Plex, they're pretty heavy. And especially when he starts speculating in this, speculating in that, and introduced those students who were interested to a whole new world of thinking. And the Ramah was a classic example of what I just said. Now, if you ever read what the Ramah writes about philosophy, it's clear he took no courses in it, so he wasn't really educated. Is amateur, but uh, he's, he's very smart, obviously. And so he's speculating within the world of the Rambam. He, he clearly read through the, the Murnavukum a bunch of times. And he eventually wrote a book 
sort of somewhat paralleling the Morin of Uchim, although not exactly, and that's the Torah Sa'ola. This is probably the least read book of the Ramah, even though it's very big and very long, and it's recently reprinted the way I like it, with, with good letters and the kudos and everything. I was shocked to see that. And this is a grand explanation of the Ramah, of the symbolism of Kachim, the Besamikdash architecture, the Mishkan architecture, the, um, what else, the uh, Karbonus, uh, the symbolism, everything. I'll just give you one example, because the Rambam pays some attention to this in the murder book, not that much. What's the whole idea of, of sacrifice in Karbonus? Well, you kill an animal. That reminds us that the world itself and all reality is temporary, because after 6,000 years, the world will be destroyed. Even though the Rambam says that the world will not be destroyed, or he's not sure about it, but the Ramah says most of uh, you know, the Gemara and the others say that it will, and therefore what you see in the Carbonus is to remind you of this mortality. So the world itself is mortal, you understand? So it's interesting, what we call today, today we don't call it philosophy, we call it theosophy. But, uh, so what? Uh, it's a lot of unusual ideas in there, and he really, it's a very good safer because um, he goes through every carbon you can think of. I'll tell you what I mean. I went through it once long ago. Uh, not only do you do all the carbonus you find in the Chumash, any carbon you find in the Bible. If Abraham once sacrificed something on the way to Egypt, he discussed what it was and why he did it. If David Amelech uh, offered a, a certain carbon when he purchased the land of the future Besamigas from Aravna the Yavusi, uh, he'll go into that. If uh, one of the kings, like Shaul or whatever, offered a carbon at this, this place, he will go into that. It's, it's a quite remarkable, you know, his his comp- comprehensive uh, nature. And he's always talking about, you know, Kadmus Olam, you know, the, 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 the big invention of Judaism, the Kiddush is that the world comes from nothing and the carbonists are somehow always reinforcing this and the and the furniture of the base that makes it reinforcing it. So to tell you the truth, for us in the 21st century, it's a little strange because it's written in a very Baroque style. Uh, a very Baroque style. Uh, it's a little boring. But if you persevere, it's like it's with a lot of swarm. If you persevere, he has some very interesting ideas along there. So I'm just telling you, maybe we'll come out of this. If you listen to this podcast, maybe somebody will be moved. If you're that type, I'm serious now, that type to make a chavrus with somebody and go through the Torah solo. Uh, you could do a lot worse. It's uh, one of the classics for him in Kalei but probably one of the least read. But you see over there, he doesn't come across now as Mr. Halacha, Mr. Dry, uh, Gemara, and all the rest of it. He's really looking for symbolism, metaphors, what's the meaning behind every little detail, the Karbonas, why do you have these Karbonas on Pesach, and those, you now, you and I know Shuas is around the corner. What's Pesach, and why is it this way and that way? And he will also quote from all the other Rishonim, including the very rationalist ones. He quotes a lot from the Ralbach, from Gersonides, who's like a real left-winger. This is very interesting to me. I remember, for example, just off the top of my head, when he discusses the Ketores, say, what's the meaning of Ketores? Very symbolic, right? The Ketores. And, uh, you know, as, I mean, the whole thing is symbolic. And I remember he starts by saying, well, let's start from the bottom. The Ralbach said the Ketores is to prevent the stinking meat, because you're killing uh, animals all over the base of Megas, so to provide, uh, what shall I say, a perfume, you know, a uh, deodorant uh, for the base of Megas. That's a very rationalistic answer, you know. But, uh, on the other hand, he moves up from there. You understand? And he's always quoting the Ramah and the Ramah. All I'm saying is, it's not the Ramah that you would think of. So I'm just uh, trying to acquaint you 
with this, and now that it came out in such a nice edition, maybe you'll be moved to, to read or take a look inside of it. Uh, the Ramah is also famous for, well, he's famous for many things, but I can only, like I say, talk about a few. Uh, one of the things he's famous for, uh, how should I, I'll do it in this order, is, uh, let's put it this way, being a very courageous uh, posseg. No, he calls it the way he sees it, and let the ships fall where they may. A classic case, a very interesting and very well-known case, is with the girl on the, on the wedding on Friday afternoon. Here we come across an interesting phenomenon. I don't know if I discussed this or not. I can never remember if I, if I repeat myself, tough luck. Uh, there used to be an old custom that you get married on Friday. I bet you many of you have heard that. But what's the reason? I don't think most people know why you used to get married on Friday. And the answer goes like this. Weddings once upon a time, you're talking about the old world. In the old world, kids got mar- were married off by their families very young. You know, 10, 11, 12, not 10, but uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, that sort of thing. In which case, it's an economic thing. You understand? The boy doesn't know the girl or vice versa. The family and the shachan get together and they make the most economically advantageous match they can that they're able to secure. It's a certain mahalach. That's the old school. And they hoped that the, way, that the marriage would last. There were successful marriages those days and unsuccessful ones. Just like nowadays, there are successful ones and unsuccessful ones. That was the old school. Problem then is that since the whole thing is financial... So you got two families. Let's say the boy's name is Yossi and the girl's name is Afegi, just for argument's sake. So uh, uh, how would they do it? Yossi's 12 or 13 or 14, and so is Fagi. Fine. So now they don't know anything about marriage, obviously. Well, the families will, you know, when they get married, they'll live with one side or the other. How is this uh, organized? Well, the Shachanim have it all worked out that Yossi's family will kick in this amount and Fagi's family will kick in that amount. We'll be put in some kind of escrow situation and invested in the way investments were done long, long ago. And as the couple grows up, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll work it out that, that way. Because it's all about money. Okay. Now, um, if that's the case, this is a financial thing as much as anything else. Perhaps even more, the most important factor. Okay. So a lot of times what would happen is like this. The general um, financial terms were were put together by the Shachan, who, after all, as you know, is looking for his commission or her commission. So they're trying to gloss over any uh, uh, financial uh, disagreements between the two sides. The two families would get together. They'd bring the boy and the girl to the, to, to the, to the chuppah, to that day. But then would come the hard bargaining, or it could be, if it wasn't taken care of beforehand. Now, in a smart situation, they take care of all the hard bargaining beforehand. But a lot of times, the boy's family lives over here, the girl's family lives over there, they're far away. And so, to make a long story short, both families come together in the village of Shnibashik, and that's where the wedding's going to be, and his family's from this place, and her family's from that place, and they've got general arrangements, but they don't have the hard facts. So how many pillows are you giving? How many geese are you giving? How much money are you giving? Who's paying the skardira, and all that kind of business. Well, what happens in that kind of situation goes like this. Yossi's side is going to produce a negotiator representing Team Yossi. And that's going to be the biggest son of a gun in their family, the hardest bargainer and the toughest guy, Cousin Shmero. He's a real Haleria, a real, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, a, a tough, uh, tough bargainer, Hungarian or something like that. And Fagy's side is going to do that. They got Cousin Shmero and Beryl, you know. They got the toughest guy on their side. Okay, I don't need a problem with that. So here comes the boy and the girl. Again, they're both 13, they're both 14, they're both 15. So they're sort of like the minor actors in the uh, drama. 
And now you have everything ready. Well, no, we don't have anything ready. Uh, and maybe it's ready, maybe it's not. But the actual Tanoim, which in those days was taken seriously, has to be signed. And that will represent a genuine financial com commitment. So where I'm going at is now begins a bargaining session. Shmerel represents Team A. Beryl represents Team B. And they go in the room and they start arguing. Well, in a good situation, after an hour, two hours, less... They'll come to some kind of, they'll hammer out an agreement, as we say today, and the wedding will proceed. But what if Beryl decides to play hardball, or Shmerl tries hardball? I'm talking about really hard bargaining. I know it's hard to believe. It doesn't happen in America. Ha, ha, ha. But it happened in the old country. You could have a situation in which neither side will yield, and the whole day will go by, and the whole wedding will be for a brachal Now you'll say, so what? You do it tomorrow. So a custom arose which is you make the wedding on Friday. Why? Because then you got a deadline. Shabbos is 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock. you gotta, you got to have the wedding before Shabbos. So that put a gun to the two sides. Yeah, Shmerl and Beryl are looking at the clock, and they know they got to at least finish by 4 o'clock if they do the chuppah right away. Then they can have the meal and everything after Lech But you But know, you see what I'm saying. And so the having a wedding on Arab Shabbos put, put, put like a, a artificial uh, time clock to uh, hurry the negotiations. And usually that did the trick. However, my friends, there's a famous case in the Chubas Ramah in which he says that there was a girl, it was an orphan girl, and therefore whoever was bargaining her side didn't have much uh, power because if she was an orphan girl, her side didn't have money. There was the boy's side. The bargaining went on and on and on. So basically, there were two real Jewish Jews, and to make a long story short, it was up to Lichbenshin, and neither side would give in to the other side. And so it was already Shabbos. It was already Lichbenshin time. They, 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 they you know, lit the candles. Uh, oh, my goodness. So what happened to the wedding? And, uh, you know, and, he, and they didn't sign a time, and they didn't come to any agreement. Uh, or maybe they signed the time. I forget the story exactly. Maybe signed the time right at Lichbenshin or something like that. It's too late to do the wedding. It's already Shabbos. What do you do? And... The girl was an orphan, and it was unbelievable busha, and it's a good chance that, that you know, since all this happened, and, and uh, you know, the wedding didn't take place, maybe the wedding will never take place, maybe the boy's side will back out of it, and uh, this was a terror, the girl, and, and the poor Kala, you know, some little girl, a poor situation, was crying, and... Drama was involved. I don't, you know, he doesn't give you any details. This is a movie, right? What I'm telling you is a movie. It's a miniseries. And uh, Jerome Moe said like this, he says, I'm doing the wedding Friday night. I'm doing it. Right? I, you're not supposed to make weddings on Friday night. That's what you think. The, uh, and in Echanami, it is true. But uh, that's because the Mishnah says, hey, Mikachin, you know, you don't do uh, weddings on Shabbos. But there is the opinion of the Rabbeinu Tom, which says that that only applies to people who don't have children yet, but somebody who hasn't proved who doesn't want to say children, you can make the wedding even on, on Friday night. And we don't pass in that way usually, but I am doing it today. It's a classic case of a pose in which it's a special situation. I know all the details, and I'm taking the responsibility on me. And I remember that Shubas Ramon, he said, the whole world is screaming hell, and they're down on my back, and they're all angry at me and all the rest of it, and I'm doing it anyway, and he wrote a whole Shubas to defend it. And not only that, this is the funny part. Not only that, he wrote a whole Shubas to defend it, he put it in the Shulchan Aruch. I kid you not. He wrote this. That's how, that's how sure he was that he was right. He was like sticking in everybody's face. I have in front of me a Shulchan Aruch. I usually don't do this. In Hilchah Shabbos, in Shin Lamites, where he says, this is the Ramah talking. 
The Shulchan Aruch says, Lo Makachin, you can't make a wedding on, on Shabbos. And now the Ramah takes over. Hagav, Yesh Matirin, Lakadish, Hechain, Ishabanan. But the Rabbeinu Tom says, you could make a wedding on Shabbos for a boy and a girl who, who don't have any children. Uh, and that's Kedushan, Epshahu Adin, Lechupa, Hechnisa, Lechupa Shari. Not only Kedushan, but even the Suin. Gaf. This is all in the Shulchan Aruch. Avogav to Lokaim and Lahachi, even though usually we don't go that way. Mikol Mokam, Somchin Alzeb Shasad Chach. Nevertheless, if it's an emergency situation, I say you can do it. Tanki Gadol Kavod Abrias. Think about the human dignity of the girl. Think about that. Kamoshi Regil and Shabbamim. Then he says, this is strictly a theoretical, you know, he was, this is in a law code. He's not going to say it happened to me. So he has to mask it and saying, like it happens sometimes. That the two sides bargained and, and, and like each one tried to chew the other down and play hardball until Shabbos was already made. So then we make the chuppah on Friday night. Because they already spent the money on the caterer. And it'll be unbelievable for the boy and the girl. That's being nice. The real busha was for the girl. He's just trying to be nice. Of course, you try to prevent such a situation from happening. And uh, I've never heard of it in America, but um, that's a very t- interesting, typical Ramah. Very nice and very considerate, but his will was iron. And if he saw something, he saw that the, you know, the girl is suffering or something like that, then he'd say, we're doing it. And he had big uh, places, as the expression goes. For this reason, oh, I can't say for this reason, but for here you have a funny situation, which is, the Ramah developed, and nobody knows why, an unbelievable halachi charisma. What do I mean by halachi charisma? His opinions got accepted by all the Jews. And uh, there are many people that disagreed with him, and there's grounds for agreeing and disagreeing. Reminds you a little bit of Ramosha Feinstein in our time in America. Yeah, you can argue on this, you can argue on that. Some people have to see out there that the, the Olam says, if he said it, that's the way it goes. That's the din. And the classic uh, example was his relationship with his cousin, I think, the Marshal, Shalom Aluria, was 10 years, 15, 15 years older than him. It was a big rub. Marshal, you know, also the contemporary Ramah. And they have a lot of letters back to each other in the Shalos and Shubas Ramah and the Shalos and of Marshal, two big gedolim. And the Marshal was formidable, of course. And you see, he's always criticizing the Ramah, uh, but it doesn't matter. The, the, the Velt goes, as the expression goes, it goes like uh, the Ramah and, and not like the Marshal. And uh, there's a famous, uh, I mean, these have entered into the Jewish history books, some of them, especially the one where uh, there's a, they're arguing over something in Chulin, that's usually what it is, you know, little details in Chulin, and the Tenra and all that, and uh, the Marshal is, is, is saying to him, you know, how do you know this, how do you know that, and, and the Ramah says, who was young, I say 15 years younger at least, the Ramah says, well, I can bring this proof again, Bruce. I can only bring. I can also bring your proof from Aristotle, and the Marshal says, like "Aristotle, you bring in that guy. What's wrong with you? You're not from and all this." And the Ramon says, "I'm from. Get off my back. I only uh, I only read Aristotle from in the Rambam's Mordechai. Uh, and second of all, I only read it. Uh, I only do Mordechai and philosophy and all that. And believe me, it's a very tame and from form of philosophy. I only do this." on Shabbos afternoon, or on Cholmoyed, or something like that, when everybody else is just walking around and taking a shmatzir, like, like we would say today, you know, bein uh, and, uh And then, anyway, if, if the Aristotle's right, then he's right, you know, get off my back. And they had it back at each other, 
And it's really interesting, because if you know who the Marshal was, he was a very honest person, but he had a big temper, and he couldn't help. Some people are built this way. He, he's like the opposite of Ramoth. If he sees something wrong or some, somebody does something wrong, he can't help but criticize the person. Doesn't mean bad. That's just who he is. These are people you don't like to be around. You see, it's tough to be around them. And there's a lot of correspondence between the two of them. And uh, the Ramoth is always like the calm, cool one. And the Marshall is always like the hot and 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 and, uh, and heavy one, and uh, it's just very interesting um, because he respects him. He knew it was a great. Uh, both each one knew the other one's a big gun, but you get these fights. Now here comes the sad story. Uh, Jewish history is full of this. You have two big rabbanim or two big rosh yeshivas. Well, that means this guy's got yeshiva A and the other guy's yeshiva B. You're always going to have an element among the yeshiva bachim who love the fights. And they love to hawk, right? That's how it goes. They just hawk. And, you know, there's all Lush and Hara. My Shiva's bigger than your Shiva. And mine said this and insulted this. And yours said that and insulted that. And they cause a lot of trouble, a lot more than is necessary. And, indeed, this happened a number of times, but very famously, well, it'll be famous in a minute, he says, very uh, prominently, uh, with the Ramon and the Marshal over the Mulyasah, what do they call that? Uh, my son says they call it roulades. You know, this is when you make meat within meat. These are things, these again, you're a day of business. You understand? The kosher's and the question of salting. And, uh, you know, if you have, a, 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 let's say you have chicken and inside the chicken, you put beef or beef and then put chicken inside, something like that. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a cook. But, uh, you know, you got to salt the meat. And, uh, but maybe you don't when it comes to roasting. There's a difference between bishel and and non-bishal, and uh, and sli, and uh, it's one thing to roast the outer meat, but what happens when you have meat within meat? So then you, if you do the uh, salting of the outer meat, will that help for the inner meat, or what degree of salting you have to do? So t- I, don't, I could explain it, but we're already over over time. Let me put it this way: the marshal had written something on this, uh, or seemed to, and the Ramah who wrote one of his books on Torah's Chatos, which is the technical and nitty-gritty of Helchus um, Kashrus in Yerodea. As, uh, he wrote many uh, swarm of long those lines. So he said, very famously, he says, you know, you need to uh, salt the meat properly, and even the inner one needs uh, a salting. And it's not like certain person said. You know, that's the expression he goes. He said, not like a certain person expressed. Achad Dvarim, who could leave? Where does it go? You know, I wrote my opinion here, which was a Mahmer opinion in regard to this Moisa. Lahotzi believe to contradict what a certain Talmud Chacham said that I regard as being too lenient. Well, he never said who it was or anything like that. But the Yeshiva guy, as soon as the Sefer was published, they all examined it from one end to the other, looking for something to make a fight out of. Man, this is how it goes. And... They said, who's the Chacham that he's contradicting or regarding his wrong? Must be our Rosh Hashiva. And they immediately showed the Marshal. And the Marshal said, how do you know it's me? He said, oh, I know it's you. And even somebody wrote to the Ramah, just like, <laughs> like it's a little angel. He said, I just was wondering who you had in mind. Who who was it? You know, in Kuflamid Bays. And, uh, <laughs> I just want to know who you had in mind you were criticizing. And the Ramah answered back, what are you asking me questions like that for? How do you know who I had in mind? 
Well, by the time it's all over, again, it's a long story and the hour is late. It's a very interesting story. Maybe I'll take this uh, speech on the road. That's not a bad idea. Anyway, um, by the time you take it, they, they convinced that the Marshal, they was referring to him, the Marshal had a meeting with the Ramos, they met him some chasen or something like that. He said, do you have me in mind? And the Ramos said, I didn't have you in mind. Anyway, I didn't say anybody's name. What do you care? And Gova Turbenino, they got into a big fight. And shortly afterwards, the Ramos died. And the way Marshal writes it, it's almost like a punishment. Uh, so you see over there a tragic uh, story in which, uh, let me put it this way, this is why the Chavitz Chaim wrote his book. This is why. Today we're the day before Lag Bomer. What is the Omer about? That the students of Rabbi Kiva all die because they're not knowing Kavit Zel is there. It's, it's very interesting. The students cause all this trouble. The Rabbeim, the Rabbanim, the people that are Rabbi Kiva didn't have a problem. But there's always going to be that element out there. You've got to watch out for people like this. That they love to be tailbearers. And after all, it's, a, um, it's a, only for the Kavit Torah. And I'm thinking of my Rebbe and my Yeshiva and all this. And next thing you know, some blowout. You know, some some civil war breaks out. Even among great people like this. I see, I've gone over my time. Maybe some future time I'll tell you other things about the Romo. But he was a very, very interesting person. Sadly, he uh, didn't live a, a long life. Uh, and there are others for me, wrote. But uh, how, how long can I go in these sorts of things? I'm trying to keep this uh, short. So I'll uh, I'll end with that. I'll just say, it's a famous expression... That the Jewish people follow the Ramah, even though, as I said before, many people said, Why follow this sheet? There are many people that argue with them. Some people have that siyata dishmaya. So here's someone who had a, I don't want to say a perfect life, but you know what I mean. He had a, he had, much was given to him, he made much of the opportunity, and he achieved a halachic immortality, and that you can't say about a lot of people. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.